you for asking because this is something that have, it's been driving me crazy. It is not a civil war. You cannot have a civil war when the leader of the war is a foreign government. It's the Saudi UAE war on Yemen. Um, they are the ones who are carrying the airstrikes. They're one, the ones who are doing, uh, you know, paying for mercenaries from around the globe to fight this war, including from the UK, from Australia, from uh, the US. A lot of ex-officials uh, who are retired are also fighting um, and paid for by the Emiratis and by the Saudis. So how can this be a civil war when you have this many countries involved in it. This is an aggression by two foreign powers with all the money that they have on the Yemeni people. Dr. Aisha Juman is the founder and director of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show, and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, Global Community Radio, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Shuck. You know, what is sad um, for me as an, a Yemeni American, it, it's heartbreaking for me when I go to Yemen. And what the people see, they say, without the U.S. support, the Saudi cannot conduct this war. So they consider this war an American war. When the war was announced, it was not announced from Riyadh. The war was announced from Washington, D.C. Jubeir, who is the foreign minister for Saudi Arabia, announced the war on Yemen, the aggression on Yemen from Washington, D.C., not from Riyadh, not from Saudi Arabia. The weapons, the, you know, when I was in Yemen this summer, the jets that fly over Yemen skies are the only, you know, planes that can fly over the skies of Yemen because there is a blockade, are American-made jets and are fueled. You know, whether it's the cluster bombs, whether it's the guided missiles, or all of these are made in America. So what the Yemeni on the ground see, they see American-made weaponry. And they know that without the U.S. support, this war cannot, would not have been in the first place and would not have been sustained. On December 14th, I interviewed Dr. Aisha Juman about the situation in Yemen on my monthly show on KBU. I'm replaying that interview. A member of the Islamic Center of Portland told me that it was one of the best interviews he had heard in Western media about what's going on in Yemen. Also on this show, an interview with His Eminence, the 7th Kiyabiye Yongzin Ling Rinpoche. He was born in India on November 18, 1985. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, recognized him as the reincarnation of his senior tutor, the 6th Kiyabiye Yongzin Ling Rinpoche, who passed away in 1983. He was visiting the West Coast this summer, and I had an opportunity to speak with him. From Yemen to Tibet, this is Progressive Spirit. I have on the phone with me Dr. Aisha Juman. She's uh, from Seattle. She's the founder and the president of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation, which is a nonprofit charity organization that aims to provide relief to the people of Yemen and support peace-building efforts. As a professional, Dr. Juman has been working as an independent consultant in health-related projects since April 2013. She manages and coordinates health-funded projects in Yemen, including the field epidemiology training program. Uh, prior to this, Dr. Juman was a consultant for CDC, uh, supporting these programs in the Middle East. In 2011, she helped establish the Yemen program amid much social and political unrest in collaboration with the CDC and the Ministry of Public Health and Population. Uh, between 2008 and 2010, Dr. Juman was director of the H. 
HPV vaccine project at PATH, uh, working in India, Peru, Vietnam, and Uganda. She is an assistant professor at both Emory University School of Public Health in the Epidemiology Department and Sana's University in Yemen under the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences. Uh, She was on uh, this program a few months ago. In March, she was in uh, Portland uh, to talk about uh, the situation in Yemen uh, for the Roots of Conflict conference, and she's now with me by phone to update that. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Jiman, to the Bluff community. Thank you very much for inviting me. Delighted to be with you, an honor to be with you. You have been working tirelessly uh, to communicate to the public the situation, what is going on in Yemen, and had a little bit of a victory here this week. And I want you to spend some time talking with me about this, the Senate uh, voting 56 to 41 to end U.S. support of the Saudi-led war. Can you tell me what this vote means? This vote means a lot to uh, the Yemeni people and also to uh, everybody in this country uh, who had been working very hard to expose atrocities that the Yemeni people had been uh, subjected to by the Saudi and the Emirates with U.S. support. Um, I don't know how much the audience know about this, but Yemen had been uh, blockaded since March 2015, limiting the uh, import of food, medicine, and essential goods to and reducing it to about 20% of what it needs. And Yemen imports about 90% of the food and medicine and essential goods. So basically strangling the population in Yemen and creating the largest famine in modern history in 100 years. Uh, We have over 18 uh, million people in Yemen who are food insecure today. That's almost 80% of the Yemeni population. We have about 100,000 kids who've died because of hunger. So this victory uh, for us means quite a bit because it's forcing, one, the acknowledgement that the Saudis are uh, committing war crimes in Yemen, whether it's the bombing, intentional bombing of civilians, and they also have intentionally bombed the infrastructure of food. So they've bombed, you know, farms, they've bombed uh, trucks that carried food, they even bombed the storage for the World Food Program, which is the humanitarian aid that comes in into Yemen. So uh, this signals to the Saudis that the U.S. government, or at least the U.S. Senate, because the administration is still supporting the Saudis, is not going to be standing idle or supporting what they are doing to the Yemeni people. And actually, because of this, the recent uh, meeting that was held in Sweden by the Yemeni uh, delegates, whether the, the one that came from Sana'a and the one that came from Riyadh, actually for the first time agreed to halt hostilities in Hodeidah, which is the main port in Yemen that imports the humanitarian aid in, and brings the humanitarian aid into Yemen. Without this vote, this victory, this uh, peace process uh, that was successful in, in Sweden in five days would not have happened. And this only happened because a lot of people called in their senators, expressed their uh, outrage that the U.S. is supporting such uh, criminal activities that were uh, subjecting the Yemeni people to famine and disease and direct uh, strikes by uh, jets that were fueled by by the U.S. government. Well, some have uh, diminished this vote a little bit, saying it's it's symbolic, uh, that it doesn't really have the, the force behind it uh, now. But this is good news that you've had, that it has had some positive effects already. What needs to come is the House needs to vote, and uh, and it needs to be able to override a veto. Is that right? Yes. So the House will be voting. This time, unfortunately, Paul Ryan uh, refused to bring in the measure for a vote. I think we have, we have had enough people in, in Congress to vote for this. Had we had both houses vote on it, it would have gone to President um, Trump for voting. But we, we feel at this point in time we have enough votes to even ride override a veto if the president had chosen to uh, do that. Uh, Unfortunately, that didn't happen. This will expire by the end of the year, but the next next year, which is January in a few more weeks, 
we're going to have a new Congress uh, that is more supportive of this measure, and Paul Ryan will no longer be there to block it like he's been doing uh, many times this year. So we are more hopeful that um, come January, then we will have a majority in the House that supports this. And we already have a majority in the Senate that does that as well. So we're all very excited. And although it's symbolic, it did send a message to the Saudis. The Saudis would not have allowed the success of the peace talks in uh, Sweden this week if this measure did not pass. And, and I think we need to understand that th this has already gave us a huge support in the fact that Hadeida now, uh, when, you know, the Hadeida port will not be destroyed because had the Hadeida port been destroyed and the fighting continued because they had started the fighting in June of this year there, although it was recognized by everybody, including the Obama administration and all the international agencies and international community that the Hudaida was the red line. However, with the support, unfortunately, of this administration, the Saudi and the Emirates felt emboldened to attack Hudaida. Had the Hudaida attack continued, the whole of Yemen would have died of famine. You are the uh, president and the founder. I'm speaking with Dr. Aisha Juman of the Yemeni uh, Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. Uh, according to the website, it says the largest ongoing humanitarian crisis in the world is in Yemen, a catastrophe of epic proportions affecting almost 22.2 million people, two-thirds of the population, more than 10 million people at risk of severe malnutrition, 14 million children, women and men are at risk of imminent starvation, 3 million Yemenis are displaced from their homes. Are those numbers on your website up to date? No, they are actually, some of them are up to date, some of are not. So the people who are at risk of famine now had increased uh, from the 10 million. Uh, the, the UN had said that we're going to have about 18, millions, 18 million now that are at the risk of famine. So that number specifically is not accurate. We also know that at least over a million women are anemic um, in Yemen. That's... Uh, and 90 percent of pregnant women in Yemen are anemic, which is really uh, devastating. Also, we know that many of the kids who have chronic malnutrition today are going to have uh, development problems because the brain needs food uh, and nutrition for its development. So UNICEF um, regional director has warned that the impact of the starvation of these kids will be uh, felt for many years to come. And what is the situation in, in terms of, of hospital care? And unfortunately, the Saudis have destroyed about 50% of the health facilities in Yemen. So this is with direct airstrikes. Um, four of the doctors without borders hospitals had been also destroyed. And that's it's just an outrageous um, and it, it, and it is considered war crimes under international law governing wars. The only cholera center that uh, Doctors Without Borders built, they, uh, Saudi damaged it or actually had an airstrike on it the day it was going to open, despite repeated efforts by um, Doctors Without Borders to give them the coordinates so that they would spare it, and they still bombed it. So they, in terms of hospital care, it's very dismal. Um, and so people work in uh, partially damaged health facilities in Yemen today. And the biggest concern for me as a medical professional, and I was in Yemen uh, July and August of this year and visited many health facilities and hospitals, the dire problem that they have is the lack of medicine. You get into hospitals and there is nothing in their uh, storage. They, they don't have any medicine because the Saudis have blockaded in the uh, entry of medicine uh, into Yemen. And even when they get into Yemen, and I'll give a, a, a right example, um, AmeriCare donated to Yemen Relief uh, medicine that would be extremely helpful and needed, uh, urgently needed for cancer centers and kidney uh, centers. The ship arrived at Aden, uh, which is under the Saudi and the Emirati control uh, on October 6th to date which is now we're already in December, we have not been able 
to get into the port to get our medicine out. And the reason for that, they limit the number of trucks that can get into the port to get their product to two a day. So our driver has been queued, queuing for over a month to enter the port to get much needed medicine into the country. So first they blockade it from entering the country, and if it does get into Yemen through the port of Aden that's under their control, then they deliberately delay the process of transporting that medicine from the port to um, the population that needs it. Dr. Aisha Juman is my guest. We're going to continue this very important conversation about Yemen. Uh, from She has just been there. She knows the facts on the ground. Uh, Dr. Aisha Juman on the phone with me from Seattle. She is uh, f- uh, Her family lives in Yemen. She was just in Yemen this summer. She's talking about the situation there. Genocide. Can you, Dr. Juman, give us really a history of this conflict and, and how we've come to a place where we are now? And, and would, you, would you use that term genocide? There are a lot of people who are using the term genocide uh, in, in the Yemen war. Um, one of the issues is that we don't know the exact numbers of those who are killed because, again, uh, the Saudis control a lot of the information that comes into Yemen. They're also controlling who gets into Yemen in terms of the media um, and even with UN reports. The UN uh, initially was counting the number of people who were killed just by direct airstrikes. By the end of 2015, I know they were reporting over 10,000 people killed at that point in time. But then because uh, the numbers were becoming uh, larger, with time, those numbers stayed constant. So from the the end of 2015 until today, the official report of the number killed is still at 10,000 people, which is really ridiculous because we know this is not true. If you look at the number injured, for example, the doctors without borders who operate only in a very few areas in Yemen have reported that they have treated over 56,000 people injured by the Saudis, by the war. Yet, when you look at the UN estimates of how many were injured in Yemen throughout the whole time, they will tell you about 46,000. Their estimate for the whole country is 10,000 less than the estimate of a few centers that are dealt or controlled or services are provided by uh, doctors without borders. So again, the Saudis are purposefully uh, reducing the numbers impacted. But if you look at UNICEF, Numbers, for example, UNICEF says every 10 minutes a child dies of uh, malnutrition uh, in Yemen and of preventable diseases, infectious preventable diseases. So every 10 minutes a child dies in Yemen. That is genocide. That's a definition of genocide. If you look at uh, Save the Children, they are the ones who've come up and said 85,000 children have died to date. Uh, so there are a lot of numbers that are coming from organizations to indicate that we have a lot of deaths in Yemen. I know, again, from visiting a lot of the cancer centers in Yemen, people who have chronic diseases, for example, whether you need you know, kidney services, whether you need um, hypertension medicine, whether you need uh, medicine for diabetes, these people are not getting their medicine. Um, and, it, and it's just really very challenging. When we did a study here looking at the health indicators in Yemen, Yemen had been making a lot of progress in health indicators, whether it's infant mortality, maternal mortality, respiratory disease infection, uh, diarrheal diseases, for example. All of these were being reduced by 30% to 80%. Um, in 2014, before the Saudis' attack on Yemen. Today, the health indicators in Yemen are similar to those that were in 2005. We have returned Yemen 18 years. The progress in health that has occurred in the last 18 years is all erased today by the Saudis' attack and the Emiratis' attack on Yemen. That is the definition of genocide. When you know that we're gonna, there are a lot of people who are dying in their homes. We don't know about them. There are a lot of people who are dying you know, in the streets because they are in a car or in a wedding or in a, you know, a, a market when the Saudis strike. They don't strike once. 
they do what is called a double or a triple attack. So they will do the first strike, for example, in the funeral attack where over 500 people were killed. They did the first strike, and then when the first response to save those who are still there, then they do the second and the third strikes. So this is, this is purposeful killing. Imagine killing the first responders people who come to save those who are still alive. And this happened multiple times in Yemen. You also, I'm sure, have heard about the school bus of children this summer when they attacked a school bus and killed over 40 Yemeni kids. The oldest of those kids is 10 years. And the, uh, the smoking gun, the literal shell, was made in the United States, Fort Worth, Texas, I think. Yes. That is absolutely true. The Saudis' main um, import in terms of uh, weapons, it's, it's, it's American. When the, uh, President Trump talks about they will go and buy weapons from another country, that is nonsense because all the military is based on U.S. weaponry. They cannot start buying from other countries uh, because everything is based on U.S. Uh, weapons. So they have to revamp everything and start from scratch if they're going to start using other um, countries. Everything they've had for the, you know, they've been buying weapons. Saudi is only second, I think it's the second country in the world in terms of uh, military uh, weapons purchase. Um, it's, it's even more than Russia and China in terms of purchases of uh, military weapons. So, so if what you're saying, I'm getting, those, so Dr. Jim, using it in Yemen. I, I just want to make sure I'm following with this, then, that if the U.S. actually stopped its military support of the Saudi, of the Saudis, this would end this, yeah. uh, end this killing of the Yemenis. I mean, Absolutely. it's that, that's a, that is that, they're that connected. Not able to do very much. I'm speaking with Dr. Aisha Juman of, of Seattle. She's the uh, president and founder of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. We're talking about uh, the situation in Yemen. Now, I know, uh, what was it Paul Ryan, I believe, who uh, uh, objected to this? They're saying things like, we need to keep involved there because it's, uh, it's really a war with Iran or something like that. Can you talk about uh, a little bit of the politics behind this? Is Iran really involved? You know, I will go back to President Obama. President Obama had given three interviews about Iran involvement in Yemen, and he said, if it exists, it's minimal. This is just um, a, a scare tactic. This is the Saudi narrative of the war in Yemen. For them to get the U.S. to be behind them, especially the senators and the Congress people, they have to invoke Iran. Iran does not have a major role in Yemen whatsoever. And if you look at the recent article that was published in, in the New York Times by um, John uh, Whitehead, what he said there, he said that, it, first of all, that Iran at one point in time had given the Houthis uh, a donation of funds, and they returned it because they did not want anything from the Iranians, and that the Iranians' relationship with the Houthis was very rocky. So it is a smoking gun. It is uh, a narrative that was uh, paid for by the Saudi lobbyists and paid for also by the Saudi PR firms. The Saudis have spent $27 million just in 2017 to spread the narrative that they want about the war in Yemen and keep people you know, not knowing the truth and not knowing what's going on. So Iran has no major role in what's going on in Yemen, and it's only being used so the American public and the American administration will be uh, supporting their efforts. I understand from one representative that I talked to about this that every single senator and every single representative in um, D.C., for every person of those, the Saudis have a dedicated lobbyist to that person, a dedicated lobbyist to mm. every congressperson in this country and to every senator, just to promote the Saudi narrative and the Saudi interests, even if that means we, uh, the U.S. interests are not taken care of.
You're listening to Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm speaking with Dr. Aisha Juman about the genocide in Yemen. More to come, plus a conversation recorded earlier this year with His Eminence, the 7th Kiyabie Yangzin Ling Renposh. Don't go away. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm speaking with Dr. Aisha Juman. We're discussing the largest humanitarian disaster on earth taking place now in Yemen. This is a disaster the United States is enabling. Uh, you know, Dr. Juman, I was thinking about about the the Houthis. The media reports when we get them often seems well. This is a civil war uh, that we have two sides responsible. Can you can you speak to that? Thank you for asking because this is something that have, it's been driving me crazy. It is not a civil war. You cannot have a civil war when the leader of the war is a foreign government. It's the Saudi UAE war on Yemen. Um, they are the ones who are carrying the airstrikes. They're one, the ones who are doing, uh, you know, paying for mercenaries from around the globe to fight this war. They have mercenaries from um, Sudan. They have mercenaries from South America. You know, all those people that the U.S. government uh, trained in South America to fight um, drug uh, cartels, they're all now employed by the United Arab Emirates fighting in Yemen. These governments in South America have actually um, protested officially to the United Arab Emirates that they are taking their best trained people when they are still fighting drug cartels uh, to fight for them in Yemen. Blackwater, which is another uh, prince, the the person who owns Blackwater, and he also established another uh, group. Um, they also bring a lot of mercenaries to, to Yemen, including from the UK, from Australia, from uh, the US. A lot of ex-officials uh, who are no longer have retired are also fighting um, and paid for by the Emiratis and by the Saudis. So how can this be a civil war when you have this many countries involved in it? There are 37 countries that are supporting the Saudis with you know, the purchase of uh, weapons, the, mainly the U.S. And so this is not a civil war because the leader of this war, uh, the, there are two countries, Saudi and the Emiratis. Uh, so thank you for asking. No, this is not a civil war and should never be referred to as a civil war. This is an aggression by two foreign powers with all the money that they have on the Yemeni people. And this aggression, Americans should know, is being led uh, in their name and with their tax dollars. You know, what is sad um, for me as an, a Yemeni American, it, it's heartbreaking for me when I go to Yemen. And what they, people see, they say, without the U.S. support, the Saudi cannot conduct this war. So they consider this war an American war. When the war was announced, it was not announced from Riyadh. The war was announced from Washington, D.C. Jubeir, who is the foreign minister for Saudi Arabia, announced the war on Yemen, the aggression on Yemen from Washington, D.C., not from Riyadh, not from Saudi Arabia. The weapons, the, you know, when I was in Yemen this summer, the jets that fly over Yemen skies, they're the only, you know, planes that can fly over the skies of Yemen because there is a blockade are American-made jets and are fueled. You know, whether it's the cluster bombs, whether it's the guided missiles, or all of these are made in America. So what the Yemeni on the ground see, they see American-made weaponry 
and they know that without the U.S. support, this war cannot, would not have been in the first place and would not have been sustained. Uh, I was sitting in my parents' house when the, the jets were hovering over, and everybody in my family came and asked me to go and be in a safe place because they can bomb anything. They can bomb a home. They will bomb a hospital. They will bomb, a, you know, a bus station. They, there, is, there is no telling what they're going to bomb. There is a group in England that monitors what the Saudi bomb in Yemen. It's called the Yemen Data Project. They have reported that only 19% of the Saudi targets in Yemen are military. The rest of them are civilian targets. Imagine, in four years of daily bombing, only 18 to 19% are military targets, and the rest are civilian targets. And this isn't because the bombs are are, are not intelligent. And this isn't because the bombs are not intelligent bombs. I mean, these are smart bombs. I mean, these are uh, a highly sophisticated uh, weaponry uh, that that can target. Uh, and, yes. and so, th- so there's no excuse by saying this is like collateral damage, or is there? When when you only have 19 percent that are military targets and 80 percent are uh, civilian targets, no, we know this is purposeful. There have been a lot of reports that they have purposefully targeted, um, you know, the food, the food, the whole food industry in Yemen, every single plant, whether it, you know, or every single farm, whether it's for sheep, whether it's for cow, whether chicken farms, hatcheries, all of those are destroyed. Even the Pepsi Cola plant in Yemen was destroyed. Even the potato chips plants were destroyed. Every single food industry in Yemen had been destroyed. Doctor, so I it should... is a purposeful way to starve the population. Dr. Aisha Juman is speaking with me about the situation in Yemen, uh, where we are hearing clearly that this is uh, a genocide, just uh, just really a, a slaughter in many respects. And this is resport, uh, supported uh, by the United States in terms of all of its help. And if it stopped, the United States stopped, uh, this could very well end. Uh, we had a Senate vote earlier this week to end U.S. support of the Saudi-led war. That will require also a House vote, a strong Congress, which perhaps can come in in 2019, and uh, with veto-proof to uh, to take this over. I'm kind of wondering where the anti-war movement is in the United States. It's just It's just died. What do you think? You know, when you are working against, you know, a lot of money that is, you know, the Saudi and the Emirati money and deep pockets and lots of lobbyists and lots of PR firms. There are over 46 PR firms working for the Saudis in, in this country alone. And, and they, spin, they spin the story. They have their own narrative. I mean, there are at least t- 10 myths about the Yemen war that every single newspaper in this country um, talks about as being facts. And when you have every single of, you know, member of our Congress and the Senate have their own dedicated lobbyists for the Saudis and the Emirates. So there is a lot of, um, and we, people say it's the forgotten war. I don't call it the forgotten war. I call it the purposefully uh, ignored war. I, it's, you know, and, and a lot of it is people, people don't know the facts. And there aren't a lot of people like you, John, who are willing to, you know, expose what's going on and not be impacted and influenced by Saudi money and Emirati money. And I think one of the interesting things that I've been reading about recently with the Mueller investigation is that they're going to be starting looking at the influence of the Saudi and Emirati on this administration and how much money they've paid. And so, you know, that is something that I would be looking forward to reading more about. This is the beloved community. My name is John Shuck. My guest is Dr. Aisha Juman. We're talking about the situation in Yemen. Uh, Dr. Juman, we just have a, uh, about four minutes left. I want to give you an opportunity to, to say what's most important. But, I also, but before I get there, I, I do want to say something about Saudi's uh, support, not only in, in terms of war, but in terms of ideology, uh, the Salafists and these fundamental uh, Islamic groups, are they, if they can even use the word Islam. Can you talk about uh, that impact? Um, you, you bring actually a, a very core point uh, to why this war is happening in Yemen and the Saudi aggression in Yemen. So the Saudis have been 
spreading their brand of uh, extremist uh, Islam to mostly the Muslim countries, but also around the globe. And one of the things they did was to build the largest university in in the Middle East for the Wahhabi Islam in Houthi areas, in Saada, which is the birth of um, Zaydi Islam, which is you know, a very tolerant version uh, of Islam or an interpretation of Islam. So the Saudis wanted to stamp the, you know, any other versions uh, of Islam out of the Muslim world and reinstitute their very extreme uh, and actually very violent uh, version of Islam. And that started a, a lot of the conflict between them and the Houthis. So this is something that is very old. It's, you know, it has nothing to do with the current crisis in Yemen. And so that's part of the conflict that occurred between the Houthis and, and the Saudis. In 2009, there was actually, the Saudis were bombing the areas in Yemen where the Houthis are living, and the Houthis were able to defend themselves and actually were able to capture over 200 Saudis prisoners of war. And that just really gave a red eye to the Saudis that they never forgot uh, because they felt embarrassed and humiliated by, you know, a faction in Yemen that was able to defeat them. Um, So, again, but the other issue that I want to also touch on is the Saudis also framing this as a sectarian war. It is not a sectarian war. And, again, when you say it's a sectarian war, you dissuade people from getting involved. Currently in Yemen, the people who are fighting, whether it's on the Saudi side or on the Houthi side, they, they belong to both sects of Islam in, in Yemen. So there is, you know, you have brothers who are on, on each, each one of them on, on, on different camps. You have, you know, a father in one camp and a son in another camp. So I'm actually grateful for that in Yemen, that the Saudis, um, you know, repeated efforts to make Yemen... Uh, fall into the sectarian violence that they have instilled in other countries like uh, Iraq have not taken hold in Yemen. And people are resisting that, and they're they're not going that way. And this is actually a blessing that we are not, that that Yemen has not divided uh, based on sects, and that people are actually more divided ideologically in terms of politics, but not in terms of religion. You know, I titled this episode "Light at the End of the Tunnel for Yemen." Uh, hope, uh, trying to put a hopeful, a hopeful face on this, perhaps with the U.S. Senate vote and possibly the uh, the Congress uh, making some action, uh, finally getting some media coverage. Uh, perhaps not completely accurate in the mainstream media, but at least something is happening. Uh, how much time does Yemen have? How much time do the people have? Is there light at the end of this tunnel, Doctor Juman? Well, that's, again, we all are hoping for that. We don't want to think of any other alternative uh, based on the reports that came in this morning from the UN, from from a lot of agencies working in Yemen. They said if this uh, truce that had uh, occurred between the two fighting uh, factions, and of course the Saudis have an upper hand in this, if it doesn't hold, then we're going to see unprecedented famine in Yemen, and the whole population in uh, on Yemen will be at risk uh, of famine. So we are still hoping and will continue to be hopeful that the conscience of the international community and those involved in this will prevail. We are very hopeful about the Congress that's coming um, in January, that they're going to push for this. And I think also the Los Angeles Times this morning reported there is fatigue in the international community for supporting Saudi on this. Um, the, US envo- the UN envoy to Yemen met with the Security Council this morning and briefed them on the dire situation in Yemen. And he said if the UN Security Council does not act and act soon, then you know, the, the death and destruction of the Yemeni people will be on their conscience. Right, we have so, but I'm still hopeful, and I think the other reason I'm also hopeful is that the Yemenis, um, are, you know, are very resilient people, and and they are not going to succumb to, um, I think, 
to feeling helpless. Uh, they're going to try to do whatever they can do to help themselves. And, and, you know, given what Yemen has been experiencing for four years now, if it's probably in any other country, the, con- the whole country would have collapsed. There is a very strong community sense in Yemen, and a lot of people are helping each other, even if it's, you know, if you take a bite of food and share it with somebody else. It's families that we give them food. They also share the food we give them with Uh other families. Dr. Aisha Juman speaking with me live on KBOO on Friday, December 15th. Follow her on Twitter, Aisha Juman. Her website is YemenFoundation.com. In August, I had the opportunity to interview His Eminence, the 7th Kiyabiye Yongzin Ling Ringposh. He was born in India on November 18, 1985. His Holiness the Dalai Lama recognized him as the reincarnation of his senior tutor, the 6th Kiyabiye Yongzin Ling Ringposh, who passed away in 1983. He was on a teaching tour of the West Coast this summer, and so we will close this week's show with that interview. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. One of your presentations is going to be on leadership. Uh, In the United States, uh, there's a great mistrust in regards to our political and spiritual leaders. Uh, Our young people do not have positive role models. What are the characteristics of a good leader, and and what should young people do to develop these characteristics? Um, Yes, I uh, totally understand the situation. Um, I think uh, there are many, many difficulties that you face uh, because of not having good role models. But somehow I think we should work towards, uh, you know, building up such a, uh, you know, uh, such a role model. And I think this should come from the uh, people and the public. And uh, people should, uh, uh, you know, um, l- learn more and read into histories and uh, uh, tr- try their best to make a better uh, community through, uh, you know, uh, through the teachings of those great beings and great leaders which have made history in, uh, in the past, yes. And we're facing, uh, as you know, many problems at the the global level uh, in regards to climate disruption, uh, resource depletion, austerity, and and, and conflict. What message do you have for for those of us who fear for the future? Yes, uh, I do understand this. Um, I think this is because of, it's all because of our greed. We all want too much. And we totally, uh, you know, neglect the... um, environment. And due to that, there are so many of those destructions and so many sufferings that we have to face and some of those uh, natural disasters. So I think it is all due to greed. So I think it is important that people should be happy with, with what they have and they should feel grateful of what they have. And uh, people should learn how to live a uh, simple and uh, uh, happy life. Yes. Yeah, and especially when when the greed is in the hands of the powerful, isn't it? That makes it also especially difficult. Yes, but the power is given by the public to the people, to those people who are powerful. So let us all work together to bring better leaders who have more understanding of the environment, who have more understanding of the future and who have more understanding of the well-being and the welfare of the uh, people. Yes, that's important, I think. Well, what practices um, do you recommend for us to become more loving and and kind-hearted to others? Um, I think it is important uh, for um, us to you know, feel uh, grateful of others. The only reason that we are existing now, the only reason that we are here now is because of the uh, care and love and uh, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, the care and love of others. So 
only source of happiness is to give love for others. If you give love for others, you will receive love from others. If you receive love from others, then you will have a happy life. So the only solution is not to be selfish and not to be self-centered. That is the source of all happiness. So make love for everyone. <laughs> and that was what I was going to ask you again. How can we become more happy? Because that really is, in a sense, uh, the essence of life, isn't it? There, there's so much uh, time in which we spend um, being fearful or, or being anxious or being sad. But but being but being but tell me again about being ha- happy and, and what and what are the pra- how can we practice that? Yes, um, I think. Uh, Anger and fear is through mistrust. And uh, that is through um, not loving others. And uh, because of our self-centeredness, our selfishness. So I think if we uh, see the kindness of others, and uh, then automatically I think the, uh, the love will uh, automatically uh, come. If there's love for others, then the mistrust will go away. Then there's no need to be fear. And then uh, automatically one can lead a happy life. So the most important is give love and uh, to see the kindness of others. That's very important. The only reason why we are here is because of others' care and others' affection, affection. So, but we don't realize that. We feel that that because of you know, uh, myself, I'm here and I'm healthy, but which is totally wrong. And you are the source of your own happiness, and you are the source of all your suffering. So you are responsible for your own uh, happiness and all the sufferings. So let us change that attitude. I think we we try our best and we all try to do the good but our method and our skills are wrong so let us change our characters that is very important and if that can be done i think uh, we one can have a very happy and healthy life if one has a happy life uh, and happy uh, happy mind then i think one can have a happy body and then one can have a happy life. I feel that way. And would that also make a happier society as, as it goes from the of individual? Course. If you can make others happy, then the others will love you. Then uh, we, uh, everyone be, will be happy. And that will create a happy environment. And that can uh, provide, that will provide a happy community and a happy, you know, society. So that's how you do it from each and every individual's level. It is not from the government. It is not from the, you know, um, some, you know, organization who can uh, provide happy life. It is uh, each and every individual's uh, effort that can make happy uh, environment and happy community. I'm speaking with His Eminence, the seventh Kiabie Yangzen Ling Rinpoche. Just, just one last question for you. You're coming uh, into the United States on the West Coast. Uh, in addition to the things you've just said today, is is there any other message that uh, that you will be talking about as as you visit the West Coast? Uh, I will be speaking in different uh, institutions, religious institutions, non-religious religion institutions, some of the high tech places. And also, I will be having some, uh, you know, uh, interfaith meet, uh, you know, gatherings, and uh, some, uh, you know, um, public events. And uh, so, uh, this is all, uh, you know. I want to share, uh, you know, the message of love and kindness, and message of peace, which is very relevant in this world, because I think. Uh, the world has become uh, very, very uh, destructive. And through that, uh, people, although there's a lot of um, material development, 
still there are more suffering in this world. So I think that it's only through inner peace. So I am uh, providing the message of uh, love and peace, which is, I think, very necessary and very relevant in this difficult time of the world. So um, that is my message, and this is what I'm doing. You know, you know, you mentioned about uh, technology, uh, and and I often wonder uh, with with the social media and all the com- all the communication that we do electronically, if if, if that does connect us, or uh, or if it can connect us, or if it separates us. I think it it will depend on the individual. I think if the individual can make good use of it, I think there's a lot of advantages that one can make, and one can. Uh, you know, contribute uh, and, uh, you know, solving many, many problems. But if we are becoming, if we become slaves of those uh, technologies, then I think it will lead into a very difficult uh, time and to a very difficult uh, individual life. So I think it will depend on the uh, individual, how he or she is going to make use of it. So uh, I think we have to be very mindful what we are doing, and we know we should know how to make good use of it. And if we can make good use of it, use of it, I think I'm sure that it can help the community. It can help the uh, humanity in general, because we all know that there are a lot of advantages of those technologies, such as modern uh, medical equipment and uh, social network which uh, solves many of those problems which were not able to be solved uh, 10 years ago or five years ago even. So I think uh, if we make good use of it, I think it can really contribute. Yeah, so I feel that way. His Eminence, the 7th Kiabi Youngzin Lin Rinposh, uh, visiting the West Coast in August and September. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with me today and for visiting us in the United States. You truly honor us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. Progressive Spirit for seven years has presented weekly interviews free of charge to community radio stations and podcasts. These are interviews with cutting-edge authors, scholars, and activists about issues that concern all of us. Spirituality, social justice, science, the occasional taboo topic with people who have evidence to back it up progressive spirit will not be bullied if your favorite public community or college radio station carries progressive spirit please thank them if you think your local station should carry it please let them know progressive spirit is formatted for radio free of charge you can also catch it on podcast at progressivespirit.net follow us on facebook and twitter progressive spirit is produced in the studios of kboo in portland oregon i'm john shuck be well.